welcome to the podcast and I'm excited to announce that I got Elizabeth here with me today who will be joining me as a co-host on the upcoming podcast going forward. So, and also links will be in the description, by the way, below, if you want to learn more about Elizabeth, but we'll mention that at the end as well. So Elizabeth, what are we, what are we talking about today? What is the topic of conversation? Uh, we are talking about how to move on from a toxic relationship while you're still feeling attached. Yeah, that seemed to be a big one that a lot of people, and it comes up again and again. I think no matter how many times I answer this question, it, it keeps coming up. And it makes sense because it's a harder stage. I think I remember when I was there and I would wake up at night and I would literally feel I was in a dream. And I think it must have been a dream what just happened, right? It kind of feels like somebody has suddenly died and you're in a state of shock, right? And you, at least that's for me. And I remember waking up and I just couldn't believe that this was real and I thought it must have been a dream surely I'm awake now and it's all okay and I would realize to my horror that no it wasn't a dream it was actually reality and it's it's I guess people are stuck often in that state of shock and also the addiction as well where even though we know it's toxic we know it's harmful and yet we find it so difficult not to go back or be in contact or check up on them because we are obsessing about them, ruminating all the time. I don't know if that is that how your experience was as well. Yeah, that really resonates. I think for a lot of people, it's linked to not having closure. A lot of times if we're mm -hmm. in a toxic situation with someone, that person is not going to collaborate with us to provide closure at the end of the relationship. And then this can be really, really crazy making for people. So I definitely get this question a lot on my platform. And in fact, I brought it to the podcast today because I pulled my audience last week. And this question and qu questions that were related to this topic uh, were asked a lot. Yeah. And I think, like you said, it's the fact that, you know, the human mind need closure. This is why when we watch something on TV, the ads come in at the high point, right? Because <clears throat> they know then we will stay and come back and watch because we want closure. We need the full story so we can make sense. Because if you can't make sense of the world, then the world feel fundamentally unsafe. And that's also why our nervous or part of the reason our nervous system is so activated that suddenly the world doesn't make sense anymore. We don't trust ourselves. We don't trust our own judgment. We don't trust our perception of ourselves anymore. And that makes everything feel fundamentally unsafe. Um, and again, we have obviously associated feeling good again and safe again with our toxic partner because we've been through this intermittent reinforcement again and again, right, where they give us a love bombing, they make it feel great, they spike the dopamine, <clears throat> then they create anxiety with their silent treatment or whatever, their rage, whatever it might be. And this up and down between dopamine, feeling reward and excited and feeling anxiety create this addiction, right, where we feel they're the one that can make us feel good again. And I think one thing I remember from my experience really clearly was, and I think this is important because social support is such a critical element of breaking this trauma bond, right? And this rumination mm -hmm. and moving on, so important. I don't really believe in this idea. It's all about just learning to love yourself. Social support yeah. is critical, but also knowing how to choose the right social support because I remember people who would shame me, who would, you know, start making me feel guilty and bad about why had you gone back again the second time I went back because they didn't understand a trauma bond right they didn't understand intermittent reinforcement and because they made me feel guilty I felt even worse and where we likely to go get the relief when we feel even more low from our toxic partner right because we associate them with making us feel good 
So I think what a lot of people don't understand trying to support a survivor of, of abuse or narcissistic abuse is that what they need is to be met with compassion. Even if it's mm. really irritating to hear the same story, even if it makes you feel really angry and frustrated that you told them not to go back and do it anyway, if you make them feel guilty, you make it harder for them to break that trauma bond, right? You make it more likely they will go back to their abuser. So all you can do is listen to them and meet them with compassion because at one point when they had enough of their abuser, they will then know that there's actually a safe place to go to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think what people who are experiencing this don't realize as they're experiencing, and then also, of course, people on the outside, we don't realize that intermittent reinforcement actually conditions us and trains us to rely on that toxic person for our sense of regulation. So even uh, I have had people describe that they, they'll even go to social media just to find a picture and they, they can find at least a little bit of sense of relief. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not very well known that this is what's happening in the body when we're in this situation. And the withdrawal from that is really, really severe. And it, uh, it feels like maybe you're withdrawing from a drug or you're experiencing really intense grief. But I also feel like around a community of support, like we know that people can uh, recover from trauma quicker with the right community of support, the right type of support. But oftentimes our general circle of support that we're used to having, uh, if we're in this kind of situation, that might not be the type of support that you need for this right now. So I usually want to help survivors become empowered around that. Like keep your relationships. You don't have to cut everybody off, certainly. But also understand who is maybe not a good candidate for turning to uh, for, for a sense of safety at this time. Um, and that's a lot of times going to be people that you know in common with the narcissist or people who who don't understand the subject at all. They just don't know where you're coming from. They want to remain neutral. They want to minimize what happened and be like, well, it's surely it's not so bad, right? Yeah. Um, or that- like this, this is always going to be created by two people. Um, I just, I don't want to get in the middle. Uh, um, those types of people are, are not, are not the greatest candidates for, confiding in in at this time, especially if they're going to leak information back to the toxic person in your life. Um, So just having some self-awareness of of that is really, really important. There's um, a lot of wonderful uh, resources to turn to, like uh, there's a vibrant community of survivors and and therapists and coaches right now on social media that are talking about this uh, in really amazing and meaningful ways, which is kind of a, a new phenomena. And I'm really grateful for that, actually. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, there's therapy itself. There's online courses. There's there's a number of really good resources. Yeah, and I think you you bring up a really important point because when we say social support, it's not just anybody. Because you're right, some people can make it far worse, and some people better. And I think, especially if we have grown up without having secure attachment, we might not even know how that even looks like, right? And to heal, like you said, safety is critical. And to have safety, 
really comes from being around people or it's more likely to happen when we're around other people that both can understand and validate us but also themselves have secure attachment because they're much more likely to give us what we need which essentially and this is important because this is what i think people should look for and it's a complete opposite of the experience they had with their narcissist so they're looking for somebody who can attune and respond to their needs, right? And of course, nobody can give us everything we need when we are highly dysregulated and trauma responds. That's unrealistic. But somebody who try and understand what's happening for you and trying to attune and help soothe you, right? A bit if you imagine a mother dealing with mm -hmm. her child. So of course, we can't expect another adult to have unlimited capacity, almost like a mother has for a child. But the same principles still apply, that when we feel that people try to understand us, and try and respond to us then our nervous system comes down and that's you know the opposite we had with the narcissist the narcissist did not try and attune because they don't give a shit about what they don't assuming. attune they, actually they, they don't, don't attune to anyone that's right they don't because that yeah. also require empathy so they don't attune and they don't respond because it's all about them so it's actually the complete opposite of the experience that they might have with a narcissist or another cluster b for that matter because i think yeah. it, it goes across the whole spectrum pretty much um, yeah. So yeah, I think knowing to look for and what secure even looks like. Also, a secure person is somebody who really respect your boundaries, right? And don't push into them when they feel that actually, oh, this is really hard for you and you can't take anymore. Um, it's somebody who cares to try and understand your perspective, even if they don't actually agree. And that's fine. Not everybody's going to agree, but they still care to try and understand where you're coming from, etc. It's somebody who's consistent, right? It's somebody who also give us much because I think when we go into these relationships, we tend to be give us a lot of us, meaning we give a lot more than we receive in general in all our dynamics. And I think, again, to start feeling feeling safe again, we need to also meet people who can meet us with that mutuality and basically give us much back, at least as we put into those dynamics. Right, right. I mean, and this is hard enough in a normal, healthy it relationship <laughs> because relationships are super triggering. Like, <laughs> I mean, it, it brings out the best, but it can also bring out the worst. And, oh, yeah. and from what I know of my own personal experience and personal experiences of some of my friends, we all know that like when you're in conflict with your partner, that the worst of each other can really come out. So it's it's even harder with a partner who is not committed to listening to you, not committed to treating you with compassion. It's going to be even harder and more lonely for you to get through these difficult moments. And life has a lot of difficult moments. Yeah. But I think getting back to this piece around community, the worst thing that can happen for us when we're going through a traumatic experience is to fall into places where we actually receive and experience more shame. That's actually going to be something that will make the trauma more severe and more complex and more difficult to get through. And maybe you might even be stuck in the toxic situation for longer because not only is the narcissist gaslighting you, then others are gaslighting you, and then you are gaslighting yourself around what's going on. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I no. think what we're looking for is is people who can collaborate with us on secure attachment. And one thing that I hear a lot and see actually a lot on social media is a lot of people want want to be accountable for 
what's going on. They want to take control. They want to figure this out. So they'll, they'll try to claim their own dysfunctional attachment. They'll say, I have anxious attachment. And I'm kind of like, you might, but maybe your attachment actually is just like, you might just be in a really triggered place right now because you've been exposed to narcissistic abuse for a long time. So you're really dysregulated all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean that your fundamental attachment style is insecure. And if it is, then going towards the right community of support can help you, um, can help you to embark upon what we call earned secure attachment. And that's really what we're kind of looking to do when we work with people in recovery. That's right. And also, like, exactly like you said, attachment styles are dynamic. They're not a fixed trait. Right. So again, they adapt also depending on who we're with. So yes, we will probably feel extremely anxious after coming out of a relationship or even being in a relationship with somebody with cluster yeah. B personality disorders. That doesn't mean that's our set point. <clears throat> Or what will be, and maybe I, not exactly. And I want to take away some of this shame of going back, um, because we started talking about this addictive trauma bond, and yeah. it, it's very natural to go back. And we have to understand that we are in a state similar to a drug addict or an alcoholic to some extent. And that's also why in AA they have a support person, right? Because they know when you feel low, yeah. and that's when you're gonna go get that beer, right? Even though you know you shouldn't have it. That's when your craving becomes even, and the same, when we come out of this, the evenings we sit at home and feel alone and lonely, that's when we suddenly want to contact our abuser again, right? And again, don't feel bad if you do it, because it's just because you're in an addictive bond. So it's nothing about your character, it's nothing about who you are, it's just that you're in an addiction. But recognizing that is important also to breaking it, right? We have yeah. to acknowledge I have an addiction, so therefore I probably need a support person like an AA. For me, it worked great, and people I work with, that when they become dysregulated and really want to check up on, on their abusive ex or partner, they want to reach out, then call up your support person. This is what they do in Alcohol Anonymous, right? And speak to that person, and they can help soothe you down and give you a bit of connection, and you will see that the need to reach out also diminish, right? So... And again, this thing we talked about, the chemicals of intermittent reinforcement, knowing the fact that these chemicals are totally out of balance because the reward mm -hmm. has suddenly been ripped away from you. So dopamine crashing, right? And and same, yeah. oxytocin crashing. And your anxiety, your adrenaline, cortisol are high. Then if we know that, we also can think of strategies to regulate that system. We know that regular exercise, for example, are great at releasing adrenaline, right? And cortisol. Even running 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day was shown to have better impact than antidepressants. So regular exercise is great at releasing the stress hormones. At the same time, you know, how can we then get more dopamine, the reward hormone? Well, we can set up, of course, social contact we talk about, but there can also be short-term goals that you can accomplish because that gives you a small boost of dopamine again. Um, it can be touch, which is great at helping you release things such as oxytocin, right? Um, so go get massages if you have friends you feel safety with then get a cuddle you know get make sure you get lots of physical touch too because that also can help if it's from a safe person to mm. restore that balance in the nervous system yeah and i i also want to say that just from experience i know that when you're in this place uh running 20 minutes a day uh, or receiving touch and actually feeling soothed by it can actually feel really impossible 
if you're at sort of the lowest point in the polyvagal ladder. And the only antidote that I've seen that is actually uh, effective when we're in that place is healing through relationship, through another open, uh, important attachment figure to you, helping you to soothe and regulate. And so for some people that can look like if, if there's a parent that you can count on, I'm talking like a significant relationship, mm-hmm. a, a, a really good friend, a therapist relationship that you have a strong attachment, a strong, safe attachment with. Uh, those are going to be really helpful for getting you to that point in the polyvagal ladder where then you can take the run. Then you can mm-hmm. uh, approach some self-care and actually receive some benefit from it. So if you're, if you're feeling like you can't, uh, there's no shame in that. It's actually completely natural. Yeah. Um, um, but I, I also think this is a good maybe segue about this no contact piece mm-hmm. because I also get questions about yeah, yeah. why you keep thinking about them yeah. after long yeah. periods of no contact. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I think again, I think most people are probably familiar with, with the no contact idea, which is yeah. pretty simple, which is, well, don't be in contact and and, uh, and prevent contact from <laughs> happening. So block them everywhere mm-hmm. um, if possible. I know it's interesting because it sounds so simple. And yet when you're addicted, it's so hard because I remember I blocked them. Yeah. But every day you want to unblock them, right? In the hope <laughs> that they will contact you and somehow will give you the answer. And I think it's yeah. so important to understand, which was so difficult for me and many people I work with, is this idea that they will never be able to give you the why. So, yeah. you know, if you keep opening up and hoping they will come back and apologize, the only reason they will apologize is if they want to suck you back in. So they will mm-hmm. never genuinely apologize. They will never be able to give you the why behind their behavior. So, yeah. you know, you can never get that from them. So unblocking them will never give you that resolution you so desperately want. Speaking to other survivors, a therapist, a coach, that can help you get it, but they yep. can never get it, give it to you. So this is why keeping them blocked don't check up on social media because when you do, it's like going back to the fridge and having that beer again, right? As long as it's accessible, then you're going to fall back into the addiction, which is also why, you know, when we get rid of alcohol or if you're trying to get off drugs, don't be around drugs, anybody who has drugs, because it will make it more difficult. Yeah. And the same here. Um, and this is why you're right. Even after a while, it's true. It can still be very, very addictive. And I think what's, interesting about this debate is I think it comes back to a bit what we debated before about attachment styles because there's obviously going through the first shock and trauma etc and become regulated again but then there's also a place where you know they do tend to target people it doesn't mean everybody has anxious attachment but they do tend to target people with anxious Mm. attachment because Mm. they are easier to manipulate they simply are you know they're easier to suck in with love bombing um, they're easier to get to to quick commitments, et cetera, et cetera, because that's what soothes somebody's nervous system who might have anxious attachment. And, yeah. um, and therefore, and we talked about the spectrum, I remember in a phone call we had where you said, you know, if there's a free or narcissism, a free and anxious, because it's the opposites, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And therefore, I think it's so important to also look at ways of then trying to deal with this attachment and trying to understand the habits and become really aware or what happens because otherwise we will tend to redo this maybe not with a with another toxic person but even in a functional relationship we will often recreate these patterns and create a level of toxicity even if we're with a with a functional healthy human being 
Um, so becoming aware of these default responses, I remember for me and most people I work with, this idea of wanting to rush into relationship is very prominent, rushing, speeding things sure. up, putting a lot of effort into it. And it's so important to, while the nervous system might compulse us and want us to do that, to feel safe, to say, just have the self-awareness and realizing, oh, I'm rushing again. Actually, let me take a step back and slow down. Because if I'm going to spend my life with this person, what's a rush? And the only thing that benefit the rush is actually a potential toxic partner, right? Because what they want is things to go quick, intense, and quick commitment. Um, so the fact is, slow down. If this is a person you're actually going to you know, spend spend a lot of time with in your life, then you have time. And time is, is your, your friend. <laughs> you know, the slower you go, the more likely it is you will see toxic patterns the more likely it is that you will develop a safe attachment together, etc. Um, so yeah, slowness is our friend. And I think that's also just important to mention as part of this process of going through the healing of really reminding ourselves. Because when we do meet new partners, new people, we tend to again want to go fast, right? And, and rush into things. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I, I made some content recently about the difference between no contact versus the silent treatment. So if you're leaving holes in your no contact strategy, like you're leaving, you're blocking them on Facebook, but you kind of left Instagram open or you block their phone number, but your email is still, is still receiving their messages to your inbox. Well, are you, are you doing no contact? The answer is no, because you're not only sabotaging yourself, self-sabotaging, but you're essentially just ignoring them, right? And there's a difference between having a true no contact, a permanent boundary versus, well, if they get in touch with me in the right way and I'm open to it in the moment or I'm feeling like maybe it would be beneficial for them to speak to me, then that's more like the silent treatment territory. Now, the silent treatment is uh, a toxic sort of behavior, uh, and it is used by narcissistic abusers, uh, and it, it's essentially a form of control. So we want to be really careful about what we're actually doing with no contact and, and make sure that it's about having a boundary of integrity rather than a strategy to play the same game as the narcissistic abuser or to, to take control of the situation and, and make it go your way. Mm. Um, because there is a fine line there and that, that line can, can be easily crossed in recovery because of course we're hoping that this was all in our minds and that it can work out, it can be okay, it can change. They'll get the picture if I ignore them long enough, like if I just punish them long enough, they'll, they'll see I was serious about leaving. And unfortunately, it doesn't actually work that way. Mm -hmm. That's right. And yeah. also, I think one thing that I know worked both well for myself and also for, for people I work with is I, I love journaling. I think you journal too, if I'm mm. correct. And it was, I'm so, because again, we, we tend to trust our cognition, our thought so much and believe that it's so yeah. accurate, but it's not. It's actually highly distorted. Um, and and again, that's a whole nother conversation we can have in another podcast about how we make meaning and stories out of out of what happens. But I think yeah. the good thing about having a journal is we can go back and get a more true picture than the mm -hmm. one we have. So when we are missing them, 
we have a very distorted picture, meaning we remember normally the initial stage, right, where they mirrored us and pretended to have the same interest. Mm. Um, and again, a lot of people say, by the way, oh, if they went to therapy, would they get better? I said, no, they don't. But let's even pretend they did. If they did, they would never be the person that you met and fell in love with because that was a mm. false mask they created for you. So if they actually recovered which they won't but if they did they would be a totally different person who probably wouldn't find attractive and compelling at all um, but anyway my point is through journaling you know it's so good to go back when you miss them so much and start ruminating and thinking oh maybe i miss out maybe you can go back to this good stage and, and know that your mind is distorting this image go back and look in your journal of all the horrible things they did to you of how horrible they made you feel because it gives you a more balanced picture um, sure. And it's also just a good reminder when you want to reach out. You know, I remember so many times I went back to my journal where I had described the dysfunctional behaviors and impact it had on me. Um, right. And I would go back and that would remind me when I wanted to reach out and when nobody could talk sense into me, I would look at that and it would remind me why I shouldn't reach out. And then I would stop myself um, mm. again. And it was good just to recognize every time I missed them so much that my mind was distorted, right? And it wasn't seeing the full picture. And then remind myself, I need to go back to my journal to get a more full picture. Yeah. What What do you think was the most effective strategy for you to stop focusing on that person? So I think it's what we started the podcast with. So the fact is nothing beats social safe support so mm. starting to feel consistently safe so you're right in the beginning you'll be so dysregulated dysregulated the heart and nothing seems to help but if you consistently do this and if you stay out of contact and keep reaching out to somebody who's safe when you want to contact them and yes it will be painful yes it takes a while just like if you're wearing off a drug there's no way that it's not going to be really uncomfortable when you suddenly stop taking the drug right it will yep. be really uncomfortable for the when you suddenly stop drinking alcohol. The body will respond and say, but I want this, I crave this. And it will try and make you take it any way it can, right? And persuade yeah. you that. And it will be the same. So it will be uncomfortable and there's no way around that. But I yeah. think if you have consistent, safe support, at some point your nervous system calms down. And mm -hmm. also the most beautiful thing about this you now have a felt sense in your body, both somatically and emotionally, what it feels like to feel safe. And when you have that, you don't want to go back to this toxicity, to this rush, to this intensity, because yeah. you suddenly have a felt sensation. So I think that's what helped me the most, was to go yeah. back. And I did have a few friends that I had to get rid of. And yep. suddenly where I realized there was a complete lack of mutuality and where I realized that they were you know, emotional dumping, instead of being vulnerable, they would offload their stress onto me and I would sit patiently and listen. And it was draining me and I realized this is not good. Um, and I would have to say stop and I lost some of those friends, but it was great because the more I got rid of those people and just had safe people that were mutually, showed mutual care, mutual respect, the more my body started learning, ah, this is what safety is. And once right. you had that sensation, it's like somebody growing up with really secure parents and really secure attachment their whole childhood is unlikely to end up with an abuser because it's just not what their body is used to and what they want, right? It's just not yeah. compelling for yeah. them. Even the intensity yeah. and love bombing Absolutely. is just... What I found is when, when I started feeling secure in that base, even love bombing wasn't compelling to me anymore. It was so compelling when I was anxious. But once I felt secure, it was really like a turnoff. 
um, yeah. to, to be showered with that kind of intensity so quickly. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I resonate with everything that you just said. Um, and part of that for me also was learning and understanding that that, that sense of well-being, that felt sense, the source of that was actually me, mm. you know, and actually like in a, in a healthy relationship, that's something that I can share with my partner, but also something that I can keep for myself and a healthy partner is not actually going to want to mess with that. They're going to want to resource that. They're going to want to collaborate with that. They're going to want to turn to that. And so learning that I could actually do that truly was kind of the missing piece that probably led me to get in these relationships in the first place. Mm. So that that was a, a big, big learning experience for me. And it was definitely um, a fork in the road in, in terms of my recovery. And then it just affected the course of my whole life for the better Beautiful. after that. Beautiful. Yeah, definitely. I think there's one extra thing we can talk a little bit about. I think we need a separate podcast on this because it's such <laughs> a big topic. But you asked me what was the main things that made me kind of recover. And I think the social, like secure, surrounding myself with safe people who are genuinely yeah. cared and were really safe and really respectful um, had the biggest impact. The second biggest impact was really dedicating my practice to to boundaries. Um, mm -hmm. and, as yeah, we do we th and as we do that, and I think this is normal, by the way. So again, don't feel bad if this is you. But what tend to happen is we had a complete lack of boundaries. What tend mm -hmm. to happen is we then often go to the other extreme where we maybe become a bit too harsh with our boundaries and eventually we find a good middle place, right? And this is normal. Yeah. And I went through that transition too from really lacking boundaries to becoming a bit too quick with harsh boundaries, right? And maybe a bit too harsh where with people that are not sick, you could just have said it quite gently. And that's okay because it's just part of practicing and it's normal. And then slowly I was able to go back. But as I started, because... Every time we set a boundary, it's telling our own body, you, I can trust you. I, I mm. got you. I look out for you. And therefore, we feel more safe and our nervous system is regulated. Every time we don't, because we want to avoid conflict, we want to be liked, whatever the reason is, we are actually telling our own system, I can't trust you. You're not going to look out for me, right? So every time we allow a boundary to be violated, it impacts our self-worth either in a positive way or negative way, right? It impacts our felt sense of safety. So I think consistently doing that had such a big impact on the healing too. Because as I started to trust myself to set boundaries and even walk away from dynamics that weren't healthy, that really made me start feeling safe again. Um, yeah. And also yeah. that I was going to be okay if some people left. Actually, I found that it was a big relief because the people who were drained They didn't like my boundaries, so they left. But I thought, ah, oh, it's so nice <laughs> to not have these people coming up and throwing their stress at me every day. It feels good. And now I have time for other people who actually also ask how I am. Yeah, yeah. it's like it's one of those things. It's like it's a bit cliched to say it at this point. But one way that you're gonna, you can tell that you're getting uh, that you're recovering from codependency is that people are getting a little bit mad at you when you're mm. you're asserting some boundaries they're yeah. giving you some pushback because they're they're used to you being someone that they can just kind of like merge right into no questions <laughs> asked right <laughs> so when they get this resistance they're like oh 
and then you're met with some resistance. So it's actually a good sign. It's it's uncomfortable, certainly. And there's sometimes um, a little bit of fallout from that. And that can be painful to come to terms with. But in the end, uh, you, most people find that they, they do ultimately feel better. Yeah. And also, I want to say, because I think if, if the people you set the boundary will consistently violate them or make you feel guilty or etc mm -hmm. then that's toxic but like you said it's also normal even healthy people might have a bit of resistance because you know if i'm used to you bringing me dinner every evening and that's really nice and you suddenly say thomas <laughs> I, i'm not gonna bring you dinner anymore then of course i'm gonna be a bit disappointed right even though it's totally reasonable <laughs> but if i got used to that right so my point is yeah. that if people got used to that even a healthy person might experience a little bit of disappointment the difference is that the healthy person will not try and guilt trip you they will not attack you etc yeah they, they might just yeah. say oh that felt a bit disappointing but then i also actually get that because yeah that must right. be a lot of work to bring me dinner every day and you're right that's not really fair so they will be able to self-reflect as well and take yeah. responsibility right but of course they might feel a little bit disappointed that doesn't mean they're a toxic person but they will then adapt and support right. you in a new boundary right after they have dealt with their disappointment yeah exactly because and i, 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 I find yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and i find also like a a sign that the person is healthy is that they're actually interested in your boundary yeah. like they might be like oh i don't like that but like they want to know why and they're gen it's it's not because they're trying to talk you out of it but they're they're genuinely interested in why you have the boundary because they want to know about you mm -hmm. they want to be intimate with you and they want to know you in, in an authentic way. And then they also want to change their behavior if they've been affecting you badly. And so there's, there's no problem there. Beautiful. I yeah. think, you know, I think this is enough for the initial talk on, on how to, uh, how to deal with the initial trauma bond. Of course, there's so much more mm. to learn, but if you want to learn more, you can reach out to Elizabeth or me. Um, links will be in the description below. And, um, and yeah, and I look forward to our next podcast.